The Latter-day Lives podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 189 of the Latter-day Lives podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. We are so glad to have you here. Before we get into this week's episode, I do want to thank a new reviewer on Apple Podcasts. Special thanks to Jill J41 for your wonderful review and your five-star rating. We really appreciate it. These reviews help us so much for uh, people to find us. We have an average on Apple Podcasts of 4.7 out of 5 stars with 543 ratings. And again, thank you so much to all of you who leave us reviews. Uh, This week on the show, my guest Randy Rigby is the former president of the Utah Jazz, as well as former president of the Larry H. Miller Sports and Entertainment Group. And Randy is one of the most amazing guys I have ever talked to. He is brilliant and has such wonderful life experience working with the NBA. Um, If you are a listener of any time of this show, you know that I am a mega fan of the NBA. I absolutely love it. And you also know that I am a huge Laker fan. And funny enough, Randy knew coming into the interview that I was a big Laker fan and gave me a hard time about it, rightfully so. Uh, But what you may not know is living here in Utah and being an NBA fan, I love the Utah Jazz. And years ago, Jason Bringhurst, uh, who's a former guest on the show, he and I uh, actually bought season tickets together. So I'm a former season ticket holder. I've been to tons of games up there, love the Utah Jazz, and loved getting to hear from Randy behind the scenes. In fact, there are a couple of stories that I ended up editing out because this is not a basketball podcast, and we got pretty deep into certain players and coaches and things that happened. And while it was a thrill and a treat for me, uh, I know not all of our listeners are into basketball the way that uh, the way that I am. So Randy's story, though, is absolutely incredible, and you are going to love it. One other thing to know about this interview uh, early on, Randy talks about a very difficult and sad chapter in his life uh, regarding the Salamander Letter and Mark Hoffman. And I realize we, we don't really talk about who Mark Hoffman was or the backstory um, of Mark Hoffman and the Salamander Letter, but uh, you may want to, before the interview, just go check it out on Wikipedia for a little more background. Or we do talk about a little bit that uh, Netflix recently released a documentary about it that is excellent. It's very fair and uh, really takes a good look at uh, what happened with this chapter in our history. And kind of a funny side note, the directors of that film, by the way, which is called uh, Murder Among the Mormons, uh, the directors, one is Jared Hess, who was the director of Napoleon Dynamite. The other is Tyler Meesum, who is my former business partner and one of my dearest friends. And uh, they made a, a really great documentary. And Randy, our guest today, is actually in the documentary talking about his experience at that time. So wanted to give you that little bit of background. Uh, coming up this week in my Latter-day Life, I will tell you why I will never, ever again take any of my children to Disneyland. It's all coming up. 
So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today, here on the Latter-day Lives podcast, it is a thrill to have with us the former president of the Utah Jazz, former president of the Larry H. Miller Sports and Entertainment Group, Randy Rigby. Welcome to the show. Sean, it's great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Well, my listeners know of my tremendous love of the NBA, and we don't have to mention any specific teams, but I do love the NBA. And as a former jazz uh, season ticket holder who's probably seen 100 jazz games, this is a thrill for me, Randy. So thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. I've got so many questions about uh, the Larry H. Miller Group, as well as the Utah Jazz, and I'm kind of jumping out of my seat to ask you them. But first of all, we got to go back and get to know you a little better. Tell us a little bit about your younger years, where you're from and where you grew up. Well, I'm a farm boy from Farmington, Utah. Mm. Um, I'm proud to say that uh, I have a great, great grandfather, Daniel A. Miller, who was one of the uh, original founders. In fact, Plowed the first furrows in Farmington, Utah, uh, coming here in 1848, and uh, and so have a rich, long history here in Utah, and uh, very proud of it. And uh, grew up uh, in a very humble, simple life with wonderful parents uh, and a wonderful older brother that was a, a kind of uh, my big brother and big protector. And uh, went to Davis High School had a wonderful experiences at Davis High, uh, was involved in a lot of athletics and uh, had some really choice friends. I want to get back to a little bit of your, your younger years, uh, because I mean, so much of your life has been basketball. At what age did you know that you loved basketball? Well, I love sports. It's, it's interesting. As a young boy, uh, my mother uh, was a stay-at-home mom. But at the same time, to help supplement income for us, she was also over all of the both Davis County and Farmington City recreation. Mm. My mother continued doing recreation and running the recreation programs until she was 80 years old. Wow. Uh, Just a a remarkable and a remarkable woman of faith who uh, set a remarkable example for me of playing hard. And yet then working hard and uh, doing what is right and serving others. But uh, she, so she loved, she loved athletics and sports and she instilled in me that same love. And so as a young boy, I loved playing basketball, football, volleyball, baseball, tennis, golf. I mean, I just loved all sports, but basketball was probably one of my uh, favorite ones as a young boy. We, we, I'm sounding like this is an old, old time story, but literally (laughs) my early years, I remember playing basketball on, on this, simply the dirt up uh, by our house on an old backboard that sat, that was on our granary uh, in the farm. And the, one of the greatest thrills was when my parents for my birthday in my uh, teenage years, they were able to afford a probably a 20 by 20 uh, 
area of they put down asphalt and put up a basketball pole so I could actually then play basketball uh, next to our home and uh, loved. So that was probably one of the early experiences of my my love of basketball. And it was quite interesting. I mean, fast forwarding, it was interesting to all of a sudden be sitting in a locker room with Jerry Sloan and Phil Johnson. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can't believe a farm boy from Farmington, Utah is sitting here talking about with some of the greats in, in basketball. Uh, it was it, it just it was been a, a, a remarkable dream. Was your brother athletic as well? My brother did not get involved in athletics. No, mm. he enjoyed more of the cowboy lifestyle and uh, uh, doing more of those things. Uh, he chose instead of a mission as well. He he was during the Vietnam era and he went and had to uh, actually serve in the military during that time. So uh, there was just two two boys in our family, and uh, I. But my my whole life, I had always thought and wanted to serve a mission, and uh, so. I was able to uh, get called to Italy South mission. And literally the first time I'd ever stepped on an airplane was when I actually then uh, left for Italy. And uh, what a shock that was for a young, again, farming, a boy from Farmington to all of a sudden travel over to Italy and, uh, and serve, serve a mission. So did you go to train in the mission home at that time then? Yes. Our training place was a, little two-story white house that was uh, off the southwest corner of the uh, the campus of, uh, of BYU is where mm-hmm. our training center was. How was your mission and how was it learning Italian? Learning it went okay until I got over to Italy and all of a sudden I remember getting on the plane and you know we thought we were doing really well in the language training center and uh, and then I got on a plane and all of a sudden there were some Italians sitting behind us and they started speaking Italian. And I looked at the other young man that was with me and we thought, what language are they speaking? We realized we had a long ways to go. And so I, I remember stepping off the plane and there and seeing military men with uh, machine guns standing there. And all of a sudden you realized I'm no longer in the USA. I'm no longer in simple Farmington, Utah. And it was a big city. Rome was a big city. Uh, it was early on. Uh, my mission was a real challenge. I had a companion. He, he worked me hard, but he was not the most friendly individual for me. And I'm a very kind of social person. He walked three steps always ahead of me. I all of a sudden found myself Again, having been very involved in athletics and friends, and all of a sudden I found myself alone, scared, couldn't understand the language very very well. And we were in a little city called Leche in the furthest part of the the heel of the uh, boot of Italy. There's a little city called Leche. We had 16 members of which one of them was active. She came out once every three weeks. Uh, so we had very few people. We knocked on doors or stood on a, a street sign and tried to talk to people and had very little to no uh, responses. So it was very hard, humbling, and uh, and challenging. And uh, and early on, I remember 
I'll share this story because it was it was fundamental in my life. I was I was at a point that it was really seemed like almost a, a breaking point for me of really wondering what am I doing here? Is this really is this church true? What and and I remember being on my knees nightly praying and crying and trying to understand uh, what this was all what was happening. One day I was with my companion who was, uh, we were in our little branch area and he was uh, doing an interview with, uh, with an individual. Uh, I think it was another one of the missionaries because he was our district leader. And uh, I was standing in that area, that little chapel, and I had one of the most remarkable spiritual experiences come wave come into my my soul with my savior testifying to me of the truthfulness of him that he he came to the people of the americas and testified to me of that truthfulness and that's just knocked over the domino then that in my mind all of a sudden when i felt that and heard that i knew it was true i knew then the Book of Mormon was true. I knew Joseph Smith then was a prophet. And the dominoes just started falling down. And I, I had a burning witness in me of the truthfulness of this church and why I was then to be there. Mm. And that experience changed my life. And I never looked back again. I never had any more homesickness. I never had any more doubts. Now, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, is letters took about six weeks to get to Italy because their mail system is terrible. And they're always on strike or a holiday or something going on. And so uh, it was interesting that um, I received about six weeks later a letter from my mother. And she said, Randy, are you okay? I was out in the raspberry patch picking raspberries. A voice came to me, Randy needs your help. And she said, I got down right there on my knees in the raspberry patch and prayed for you. Well, Sean, as I went back in my mind, that was the exact time that I was on my knees in my, in my apartment the night before I had that experience in tears, asking my Heavenly Father to give me some answers of what this was all about. And uh, it was a remarkable experience for me. In my, in my bedroom, one of the greatest gifts I've been given was my daughter painted for me. And then I had another friend paint for me Another picture, I've got two, from my daughter and then from a friend, two different pictures of my mother in the raspberry patch praying. And it, it means all the world to me. Randy, that is one of the most beautiful stories I've ever heard. So then uh, about nine years ago, 10, uh, ten years ago or 11, we're sitting in our house watching conference the final session of conference from President Monson. And I had a prompting, and he says, 
and now I'm going to announce the building of some new temples. And all of a sudden, in my mind and heart, I all of a sudden thought, what if he was to announce a temple in Rome, Italy? My, my children were sitting there, and all of a sudden, he announced Rome, Italy. And I let out the biggest yell <laughs> and said, I said, Sandra, we're going. We are, I, we are going. And, and all of a sudden, my son, who doesn't miss a beat, he says, and dad, who else do you see there? Who else do you see there? And says, I said, okay, all of us are going. You know. And and you know what? We planned luckily it took it took long enough. We saved up the money and we we ended up saying, okay, all you kids and your spouses can go. And uh, we went and we had a remarkable time. Mm. And for a father to go back to his mission that was so difficult and, and so few saints and to see now that there is a temple there for those saints and to be able to take all of my children and be in the house of the Lord was a choice. It, it's one of those paydays for a father and a, a member of this wonderful church. So let's go back to your mission. You get you get home. What came next? So we got, got home in 1976. And uh, uh, the summer I came home, uh, I, was, I met a young lady in young adults. And this young girl was from Farmington. And she was a couple of years younger. And she had grown up. And I don't know where this little girl <laughs> had girl, gone from a young girl to a beautiful young woman. And uh, I said, I've, I've got to start dating her. And I met Sandra Tilly. And luckily, she was going to go to BYU. And luckily for me, her, her uh, boyfriend was going, leaving for his mission. And so uh, we started dating. And so I went down to Brigham Young University. Um, I thought I would go into pre-med. And I have never worked so hard in my life against all those other pre-med students. I never worked so hard to get a B plus in chemistry. (laughs) And then I walked into that physics class and it was twice as bad as chemistry. And at that point I said, I think I need to look at another direction. (laughs) (laughs) It was a right decision for me to make the decision to go into business. And I, I thoroughly, I thoroughly love business. Uh, You graduate from BYU. Now here you are a young married man. Uh, fresh out of BYU with the business degree, where did you go next? And and so then I was, uh, my wife's father was running a company called Salt Lake Hardware Company in Salt Lake. And he says, I need a good young man who would come and help be involved in our sales and take some of our programs and help build them. And so I, I thought that sounded like a good opportunity. And so I started working for Salt Lake Hardware Company. And, and I worked there for three years. And uh, then there was, during the early 80s, there were some real um, challenges with uh, uh, high interest rates. Uh, business was tough. And uh, we had, there were some real, my father-in-law had some partners that actually felt they knew more than he did. And next thing he knew that there was a quasi takeover in the business that he was in. And the way they knew that they could kind of get at him was uh, 
they made a decision that they passed an anti-nepotism uh, act in the company, and they let everyone go who was related to anyone else in the company. And I mean, it impacted of probably 100 employees. It impacted 30 employees of all different people. And it, But uh, that was their way of taking gaining control. And so all of a sudden, I found myself out of work. And uh, I just closed on a new house and, and still trying to sell my old house. So now I found myself out of work with two two jobs, uh, two uh, house payments. And then we had one of these famous east winds in Farmington. And then one of the houses, I'd lost some of the shingles. So now I had uh, roof problems, no job, and uh, two house payments. And uh, it was an, that was, again, an interesting time. And uh, I was looking and talking to a lot of people. And uh, I received a phone call from a who became one of my dearest friends, uh, Steve Christensen. And uh, Steve was one of the partners in a company called CFS Financial Corp. It was at the time a predecessor to a lot of these venture capital companies, but it was they uh, they put together investments for high income individuals uh, all across the uh, Western United States. And Steve called me and he said, "I understand you're looking for work." And I said, "I am." This was on a Saturday night, and he says, "Why don't you come in on Monday morning?" So I went in the Monday morning all with all my resume and everything ready to sell them on it. And he, he said, uh, well, when can you start working? And I thought, well, don't you want to interview me? And, I, I, <laughs> and he says, no, I just want you to come to work for us. That started a journey with my relationship with Steve Christensen. That was one of the choicest relationships that I've had in business. During that time, uh, we were working. And, of course, Steve was also one of the top people in kind of who loved studying church history. And he was uh, loved interesting documents. And he was in, uh, approached by uh, Mark Hoffman on some different occasions with different things. And, but uh, Steve was invited to look at, of course, this, uh, what was then known as the Salamander letter. And uh, he ended up, and we ended up forming a partnership actually with, four of us that were kind of partners with in the business and I'm buying the salamander letter because Steve was going to do wanted to do church research and had felt like the church needed to be more transparent with with some of these documents and so while I was there at CFS with with Steve we were involved in the, the salamander letter and uh, our business started really struggling but at this time that they financially they were just having a hard time being able to continue on. And so Steve and I had made the decision to actually leave the company and start our own firm and company so that we could do some things with lower uh, overhead costs. And uh, during this time was when also Steve was involved with, uh, unfortunately, then uh, Mark Hoffman delivering to our office the... Uh, the package that uh, killed my partner. So that was another very interesting time in my life when one of the choicest people that I know uh, all of a sudden was, uh, was killed and the impact that it had on his wonderful 
family was uh, was just devastating. Yeah, and and uh, on top of that, I'd actually gotten to our office ahead of Steve, but I'd been getting a number of parking tickets parking in front of our new office. So I made a decision because I came by there and saw that Steve hadn't arrived yet. I had quickly gone to my office and picked up the phone to call to call Steve and tell him I was going to be 10 minutes late to our meet, our eight o'clock meeting. And that 10 minutes changed from me picking up Steve's package in front of our door to Steve picking it up. So all the tragedy that the challenges of our old business, the excitement of our new business, now all of a sudden going up, totally vanishing because of this. And more importantly, uh, my my dear friend and 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 incidents that you're trying to make sense of that why would why would someone want to kill a man as wonderful as Steve Christensen and the impact that it had on him and his family and on me I mean I, I no sooner got home and I had the FBI calling me and police calling me and say you need to leave your house we're going to have bomb dogs come over. And all of a sudden, you're saying this stuff doesn't happen in in Salt Lake City, Utah. These maybe in Chicago, New York, L.A., but not here in Salt Lake City. And so it, it was just a it was a very interesting time. And I later realized I probably needed some counseling. I it would have helped me because there was really some. Uh, it took me a lot of a, a number of years. Uh, I thought about it every day and a lot because it, 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 the impact of it and and it made me decide at that time as well. Uh, I'd been offered to go to work for the Jazz two years earlier, but I turned them down because of my because of the relationship with Steve and and their trust in me that I didn't want to leave them uh, because of them believing in me, but because of then my relationship with Dave Checkets, David, uh, a dear enough friend to call me and say, "Hey, Randy." You're, you're you're probably looking for something different. Come over and maybe let's let's still talk. So mm. it then became an interesting transition. I'd go to early meetings with the jazz, and sometimes I'd be five minutes late. And some of the other guys that I was working with would would kind of jump on me and say, you know, hey, don't you know you're never supposed to be late for a meeting? And in my heart, I was saying, you guys don't understand. Mm. I was because of me being five minutes late. It saved my life. Yeah. Uh, so it's interesting how you kind of go through these different things in your in your life and uh, how they have a major impact on on your thinking and your actions. So, um, because you were involved uh, with murder among the Mormons, how did you feel that turned out? I thought they did a very very nice job. Yeah. You know, I thought it was Jared Hess and, and the group did did a very they they did a lot. They did their homework. There there was so much dynamics to that story. It's unfortunate. It it needed more than three episodes. Yeah. But I thought with the time they had and the constraints that they were working in, I thought they did a very nice job. So we started talking about the Utah Jazz. How did you get to know Dave Checkets? So Dave Checkets took over the Jazz and at a, at a key time, just when the Jazz was starting its turnaround as well of being a, a competitive team and so uh, dave had actually talked with me about joining the team and uh, and dave and i have always enjoyed and respected one another i i wrestled with that decision and i ended up turning him down 
but we'd stayed in touch with each other. And so then two years later, uh, when uh, uh, shortly after Steve's passing, and I was ready to make a change in my careers, and uh, uh, Dave reached out to me, says, come and do some research and analysis for us, and ended up saying, you know what, we need someone who has, uh, I, I didn't have really deep back uh, broadcasting background, but I'd been doing a lot of research uh, on broadcasting. And he says, I need someone who can get us into the cable TV and business and oversee our, our broadcasting. And, and you have some sales background. I said, yes. And he says, so you could also be our national sales manager. So I came on as the vice president of broadcasting and national sales manager. And so your first job was was selling. When you say selling, tell us what you were selling. I was overseeing then getting our broadcasting rights in, in radio, in television, in adding cable TV. And then we would also uh, put all those together and we got we bought a bunch of new signage and put it in the building so that we could then go after sponsors. And I'd go after all the national sponsors, the Pizza Huts, the Auto Zones, the all those big, those, those, those companies. So, um, I, I started do, doing, uh, that selling at that time. Now here's the interesting thing, Sean, is when I started with the Utah jazz, we had a total of 18 employees in our front office. Wow. <laughs> we had then a basketball team of 12 players. We had a coach, two assistant coaches, a trainer, an assistant trainer. That was then the basketball side of things. And uh, we had a payroll of basket for the players of $2.3 million. <laughs> well, when, when uh, today, today there's over 150 employees for the Utah Jazz. And, you know, your basketball, on the basketball operation side of things, you have well over 25 employees just in the basketball operations side of things. Uh, we, I, I'm almost convinced we have almost a coach for every player now. <laughs> and it's, it's a whole different game. And we have a payroll now well of over, over $130 million. So it's amazing how it's all changed. But one of the things that we did as a company that was really, and we, I came on the exact same time that Larry Miller bought the second half of the team where he then mm. took over control. So it was a wonderful, actually, timing for me and Larry. We both kind of started uh, our journey together with the Jazz uh, at the same time. But one of the things we realized we had to do is we had to try to then do everything we could to, to put all of the money that we could find in any different revenue source and put it back into the team so that we could afford these high-cost players and compete with the LAs, with the New Yorks, with the Chicagos, because we were market 35 at the time, where they're the, mar the top one, two, three markets. And they have you know hundreds of millions of people, and, and we're maybe got a million people. So uh, we were, you know, we're for, for viewership. And so it was a big difference. And so we really had to look for ways that we could compete. Where, where were they playing at the time? We were playing at the Salt Palace. Yeah. And that was one of the things we also realized is, you know what? We need to find a different venue, Larry, and so that we can add more seats and have more signage and have 
luxury boxes and really be able to compete. And, and that was a big step for Larry. I mean, Larry put his heart and soul into being able to build that building. And he started building it before his, he had the, the final financing put in place. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was a remarkable risk taker and the price that he paid for, for uh, the team and for the community to keep the team there was very impressive. Yeah, he's oh. he's an amazing. I mean, I've never met him personally, but everything I know about him is amazing. And as a diehard fan, I always loved when there was a national playoff game that was on a Sunday. The commentators would always say, "And you do not see Larry Miller here in the arena because it's Sunday. He's worshiping with his family." And I thought, you know, millions of people heard that message. Uh, and I just remember that being such a great, awesome yeah. example. Yeah. Well, we really had to work. We worked hard. We, we, you know, and the NBA didn't like it, but we, we went to the NBA and said, we don't want to play games on Sunday in this market. We feel for the, for our fans that are paying for these tickets and making this big sacrifice. The least we can do is to avoid games on Sunday. And the NBA agreed to allow us to not schedule games on Sunday hmm. uh, other than when we got into the playoffs. Yeah. At that point, because it was controlled so much by TV revenues and by the TV schedules, uh, we, we were forced to have to be able to play games on Sunday. But other than that, uh, the NBA worked with us, which was really uh, a real positive and I think very good for us. And uh, that's that was great. And, and you know what? In respect for for our coaches and players, to a certain degree, that also handicapped us a little bit because it it didn't allow us to spread out the games as much as other teams could because they you know based on travel and things. When you're all of a sudden limiting one one day out of the week during a, a com, compact season, it had an impact also on kind of our our scheduling. But yet uh, uh, we felt like we would be blessed because of doing that. And uh, I think we were in a lot of ways. So for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, See, from sales, where did you go next? So from sales, I actually, uh, we convinced Larry also that we, you know what, we needed to protect our broadcasting rights. And we needed to, we, at that time, a number of teams, a lot of, TV stations were being bought up by big conglomerates in the major markets. And so I said, Larry, we really could use owning our own TV station. Uh, and so we would secured our rights on radio so that we pretty much controlled most of the time on radio. I said, we really need to protect our TV rights. And it's going to allow us to be able to negotiate better for our cable TV rights as well. So I all of a sudden get a call one day from Larry and he says, okay, I've bought the TV station. I have a gentleman that's running it uh, for a while. And within six months, he calls me up and he says, it's not working that way. You've got to come and run this. You've got to continue doing what you're doing, but this is a little hobby. I need you to start running the TV station. (laughs) So all of a sudden I found myself now running TV and also uh, doing all of our broadcasting and running the TV station. And so we made a determination with, we bought KGS TV. Well, yeah. it was, it was actually 
KXIV, and we changed it to KJAZ. And, uh, and I knew how to make sports broadcasting work. So one of the first things I did as a BYU boy is I said, I can't get BYU sports. But I knew that, that the University of Utah needed more opportunities for their sports. And so we said, we got the perfect place for you. So I, I worked with Chris Hill and Mark Amicone and secured the rights to uh, the University of Utah and really helped KJAZ get a, a foothold. And we went after some good sitcoms and said that we're going to counter-program to the other TV stations and allow good entertainment and good sports. And it really helped us to build that TV station. That's At the great. same time, Sean, we had, we realized we needed to then, of course, we built the building, the arena, and we, many teams have someone run the, the arena. Well, we said, we'll run it ourselves so that we can, again, keep all the revenues and profits and put it back into the team. We started selling all of the apparel, you know, a little concession stand selling t-shirts and hats and jerseys and soon we said to all these they're popular enough we opened up a little store over at the crossroads mall called initially pro image they became fan stores and then uh, bob hyde was uh, our cfo he also started then developing more and more and then we built up uh, we ended up having 120 fan stores in 20 states and uh, again creating revenues for the team. Uh, we had our broadcasting. We ended up buying a radio station to again bring those revenues in with us. Then Larry wanted to buy some t- some uh, uh, theaters, and so we started running theaters. <laughs> and uh, we you owned were our involved own, uh, in all this. And so we we're involved in all of it. And that's oh. why I, I had opportunities to look at going other places. And I've always told people. Working with Larry and, and building these other businesses was just a dream come true for a, a young business guy like myself to really be involved in. And they were all their own different businesses and industries. And it was just fascinating. And at the same time, taking this NBA team and building it into championship caliber teams was just quite a unique experience. And, and then Larry it. bought the, and then Larry built the uh, uh, racetrack, which was it. It could be its own little discussion, but Larry H. Miller it, Speedway, sure. Yeah, yeah. You so can't, we had you, to, you can't drive very far in Utah without seeing the name Larry H. Miller. You know, as you as you drive uh, from south to north, you're going to see the Larry H. Miller dealerships, the megaplexes, the Speedway. Yeah, it's his name is everywhere. We had a graphic that showed kind of a light that lit up that of. Uh, of touches from not only his businesses, but people that all of a sudden bought a car or was a season ticket holder. And to your point, uh, you soon, it almost lit up the whole Western United States when you started seeing the impact of what uh, all of his different businesses had uh, on, uh, on the business community, on the sports community, on, on just people in general. On my life, so, because uh, I own a truck that I happen to buy at Larry H. Miller Chevrolet of Provo. So I'm, I'm all in on it. Also, for our listeners, if you want to hear a little bit more of another side of the K-Jazz story, you can go back uh, two or three years ago to my dear friend, Scott Christopher, who was the voice of the Utah Jazz 
for many years. And it, it was kind of a treat when he came on and he was a guest on the show and he uh, was talking about his years at KJS and he did the coming up tonight at seven o'clock. It's Frazier or whatever, you know, that he would I do hired, that. I hired Scott Christopher to, oh. be our, to do that. So he did Scott. a wonderful job for us. Scott is so. a dear, dear friend of mine. So yeah, he was great. We had such a good time recording together. Uh, when did you make the transition over to being the president of the jazz? One day then, uh, uh, my boss, Dennis Haslam, Denny Haslam, that was, uh, the president of sports entertainment and the jazz. He said, uh, Hey, can you meet with me tomorrow? And I said, sure. And so I, uh, he said, let's, let's meet at 10 o'clock. I said, no problem. So the next day I'm sitting in my office and all of a sudden Larry walks by and he, Larry pokes his head in. And he says, Hey, Randy, uh, I'll be with you in, in, in five minutes. And all of a sudden I'm going, I'm not planning on meeting with Larry. I'm just, I'm meeting with Denny, but he ended up calling me into the conference room and he pulls me in there and with Danny, just the three of us. And I'm going, this is, this is interesting. And then he says, he turns to Denny. He says, uh, do you want it to tell him or do you want me to? And I thought, what am I going to be fired here? And, <laughs> and then he says, well, let me, let me tell you why I said that, Randy. He says, you know, I had a guy when I first started in this business, he said, we needed to fire a person. And I asked him whether he wanted to do it or he wanted me to. And the man said he'd do it. And he says, he went in there and he said, they sat in there for a half hour. And he says, finally, I walked in there and told the guy, <laughs> hey, things aren't working out. You're done. And so I turned to Larry. I said, so are you telling me something here? And he puts, <laughs> he had this Larry, only Larry could have from this serious look, this big smile on his face. He said, no, I'm just pulling your leg. But I do want to tell you that uh, Danny's made a decision that uh, he's going to retire. And uh, uh, so we need uh, a new president for the jazz and sports entertainment. And we want you to be that, that person. So uh, it was uh, my wife had just left for a two day trip with uh, friends. And he says, uh, I need your wife to be to a, we need tomorrow morning to be to a press conference. And so I had to quickly call Sandra and say, <laughs> honey, I need you back home. Amazing. That, that happened. Yeah. What, what year was that then? That was, that was July of 2006. Okay. So, All so right. it was shortly after that, that, you know, unfortunately we lost Larry. And so that was an interesting time for me of, of losing Larry and the transition of, of Greg coming in and getting involved and the, the, the Miller family kind of taking that transition. Right. Uh, so, well, that was also a little bit of a, I would say, I, I hate to call it a rebuilding time because it really wasn't rebuilding, but it only was because you had two of the greatest basketball players in all time. It was a new rebuilding time. Yeah. Uh, and, and we had always recognized that as an NBA team, unlike the LA's or the New York's, they can financially just reset immediately and they don't mind what it costs to do that. You can, in a small market team, you have to rebuild through the draft and do it very strategically and systematically. And so we had been redoing and rebuilding. And as you remember, then shortly after that, 2009 was the economic downfall 
right. of the bubble burst again. And so we had, we were going through that and going through the challenges of Larry's passing was right around that time. It was an interesting dynamic time that we, uh, that, uh, I got to go through. Uh, but we, I had a remarkable individuals that were working with me and, uh, the Miller family, extremely supportive, and uh, we we locked arms and went through it all together, and and had good enough teams that we could, you know, we weathered the storms of it. And uh, yeah, it's fantastic. What a, what a wild time! Oh, and then, how long did you stay with the Jazz? So then I stayed in in 2016. Uh, I retired from mm. the Utah Jazz. Beautiful, and uh, so. Uh, we kind of it kind of agreed that I would just be an advisor for about a four year period of time. So about a year ago, but uh, I've stayed very close with. Uh, of course, I hired Dennis Lindsay, mm. hired Quinn Snyder, and uh, wow. so they're dear friends. And so I, I regularly stop by and just harass them a little bit. And uh, <laughs> but uh, it, it's fun to see these players that, you know, that you're involved in Rudy Gobert was one of the last, you know, players that, uh, I was involved awesome. in the draft with and getting Rudy and, and Joe Ingles and those players. So it's, uh, it's fun to see how the team is doing. And, uh, great. you know, it's, it's, it's always great when you had governor Herbert said to me, Randy, the interesting thing is he said, uh, when we travel the world, he said, the two biggest influences who have made Utah, he says, where when people now know of Utah, he says it's from the Mormon Tabernacle Choir and the Utah Jazz. Mm. And it, you know, it's been really fun because when we first, when I first started with the Jazz, I traveled back east and I'd say I worked for the Utah Jazz and people would say, what instrument do you play? <laughs> and uh, the, People now know who the Utah Jazz are. This is a blessed community, and it's fun because uh, bringing kind of a little bit of the church into it, you have these players and coaches, and they are regularly saying, you know, there's just something very special about this community, and uh, and they can't quite put their finger on it. And I says, you know what? There really is something very special about mm. it. So the interesting part to me is we had two chances of NBA championships, of course, and the Bulls were <laughs> ended up winning it. And there's, you know, you could say a lot of what ifs. And if we had the shot clock, if if we had the replays now, like we have then, like we have now, there are some things that could have changed. But you know what? For sure, life you can't life you can't replay. Uh, you just have to take it, the wins and the losses. But the one thing that gave me a lot of gratitude and appreciation, I happened, I was invited by Jerry and John uh, and was the team president to go back when Jerry and John were inducted into the Hall of Fame. Wow. The same year of which Michael Jordan. Mm. And if you go back and listen to the talks that Michael gave about in, his, in the induction, and then go and listen to Jerry and John. And and Michael still had his frustration and, and issues with some of his teammates, with with some of the ownership, with the ownership in front office. 
and he kind of still shared those challenges and issues. John Stockton and Jerry Sloan got up and talked about the love they had for their teammates and their coach and other coaches and players and the front office and people. And I couldn't have been more proud to be a Utah Jazz man with them. And to, to this day, the relationships and the love that we have with those players, with those coaches, uh, that's something you can never take away. And uh, we might not have championship rings, but we have, to me, champion men and women who were champions in my eyes and always will be, who uh, I love dearly. And uh, that's, that's priceless. So mm. and I've heard that from John. I've heard that from Carl. And I know it, heard it from Jerry and, and from a lot of other of the key people. Uh, there's a lot of great people who made a world of difference. Frank Layden in forming and building this team yeah. to being something special. And again, I want to say that our, our jazz fans have been a big part of making it special for us. So mm. I, I can't be, I, I have a lot of gratitude for those memories and those people. And uh, above all, I have to thank the Lord uh, for all that he's given to me to be able to allow me to do that and how he has blessed me in our life and this community's life to be able to, to enjoy so much uh, from his goodness. Randy, you are such a blessing and the jazz are a blessing to our community. And I just love, love hearing your story. We're going to wrap things up with the question that we ask all of our guests. And that question is, what does being a member of the church mean to you? It means everything to me. I have a strong testimony that God lives, that the Jesus Christ is my Savior and my Redeemer, and that he has restored his, his church on this earth uh, with all priesthood keys and authority and business and basketball are fun and exciting. But what is most important is the eternal nature of man that we are sons and daughters of God and that we are here to grow and develop and to become like him. And I'm so thankful for that knowledge and so thankful that uh, I've loved basketball and business, but my greatest treasures that I will cherish forever is my testimony and my love for my savior. And that I have a wife and five beautiful children and now 15 beautiful grandchildren. And I should say 10 beautiful children because they're all married now with wonderful spouses that are my children now. And uh, knowing that we, the eternal nature of man, and that we can be together and that I can be together with also a lot of these friends and uh, that I've developed in, in the world of business and who have supported me in so many ways uh, means everything to me. So it's, it, we have our trials and our challenges, but we're blessed to have that knowledge that allows us to be able to deal with those challenges and, and know that uh, if we continue to keep his commandments, that we can uh, uh, enjoy happiness and joy in this life and in the worlds to come. Awesome. He is a husband, a father, a grandfather. He is the former president 
of the Utah Jazz and the Larry H. Miller Sports and Entertainment Group and has really done a lot for the state of Utah. Randy Rigby, thank you so much for sharing your latter-day life with us. We appreciate it. Great to be with you. And my special thanks to Randy Rigby. What a humble, incredible man. I just loved talking to him, and I understand why the Jazz were so successful with him being there. He's just an amazing guy, and uh, just what a beautiful testimony. Thank you so much, Randy. Uh, This week in my Latter-day Life, as I mentioned in last episode, uh, I took my son Keaton to Disneyland last weekend. And much like you know I'm an NBA fan, you know I'm a huge Disneyland fan. And uh, Keaton and I uh, have this goal to try to go to Disneyland once a month until he leaves on his mission. And we've been having a good time uh, going out there and spending some time. And we were there last weekend, walking around, riding rides, having fun. And all of a sudden, something kind of sad dawned on me. And that's when I realized that I will never again, as long as I live, take any of my children to Disneyland. And I need to clarify what that means. Uh, My son Keaton is going to be turning 18 here in a couple of weeks. Actually, on Thanksgiving Day, Keaton will be 18 years old and no longer a child. And Keaton is my youngest. And so I have no more children left to take to Disneyland. Now, I will very happily take my adult kids or children to Disneyland. But I started thinking back, and you should never get nostalgic while you're at Disneyland. It'll just make you cry. (laughs) But I started thinking back to when Keaton was a baby in a stroller. And we took him when he was tiny, and all of our kids. And with their little mouse ears and watching fireworks and going on Dumbo, and it's a small world. And over the years, there's never been a year other than the pandemic. There's never been a year we've gone without going to Disneyland. It's a special place uh, for me and our kids. And um, thinking back on it, what special memories we've had, and how hard it is to let go and realize that, yeah, that's it. That was my last time with a child of mine. And next time I go with him, which is very soon, it's actually first weekend in December, I'll be there with him and with my daughter, Krista. But I'll be there with a man. I will be there with an 18-year-old, not a boy, but a man. Sometimes it can be really hard to enter into new parts of our lives. You know, to become, uh, we're coming up on empty nester status. I've got friends who just entered having uh, their first babies, or whatever it is, you know, newlyweds, or whatever stage in life we're going through, it can be really, really hard to adjust. But the blessing in it is to look back and be grateful for the time that we had, and to be excited about the time coming up. I love what the future holds for my son. I love watching all of the rest of my adult children, all seven of them, and the decisions that they are making, and the things they're going through. And I love the ones that will still let me take them to Disneyland, and the ones that prefer not to. I love spending time with them, going out to dinner, or doing the things they are interested in. What a blessing this life is. How grateful I am for my children. And uh, 
pretty soon how grateful I am for all eight adults. What a blessing this life is. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. We really appreciate it. Do you know someone who would enjoy this show? Do you know someone who could just use an uplifting conversation with amazing members of our church? If you could share it with them, you might even have to teach them what a podcast is and how to listen to it. But we are so grateful. All of these incredible guests we get, the more we can share their stories, the more we can make the world just a little bit of a better place. The Latter-day Lives podcast was produced by Gene Chittister. Social media by Skylar Fleming. I've been your host, Sean Rapier, and I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it, just not of it. Thanks for listening. <laughs>